Hey guys, I'm super excited. Uh, today I have my friend Henry Kramer. I found him on Instagram. Uh, I've been wanting to talk about ecology and nature and philosophy and all that stuff uh, for a while. And I just loved his page and what he what he stood for. And um, so I had a talk with, chat with him and uh, super interested in everything um, we had to talk about. And so, yeah, uh, thanks for coming on, Henry. Yeah, of course. No, it's super excited to be here. So um, I guess I should just introduce myself a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I am really passionate about the intersection of spirituality, imagination, wonder, and the non-human world, the more than human world. Um, I always have been. And yeah, you found me through Instagram. So I, I run a page there called Enchanted Ecology, where I try to instill this idea that we can enchant the world, that the world that surrounds us has sort of been flattened by our accustomed acculturated modes mm. of perception and we've we have this sort of veil over our eyes with how we look at things and uh i knew you asked you wanted a little bit of of my background so right i have my undergrad degree in the psychological dimensions of religion which is a totally made up bs degree that i <laughs> I've collaborated never with a yeah <laughs> i'm the one person with it um a hundred percent of people with psychological dimensions of religion get a job in the field <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's a great degree if you want to yeah um yeah so it was uh because i did a a uh a program for mm. interdisciplinary invented oh, right. majors so mm -hmm. i i did i i got that um through there and originally thought i was going to study philosophy and psychology because I was interested in the big questions and why mm -hmm. we ask them. Right. And then I took some classes in religious studies and realized that when it's taught well, the questions that surround religion and spirituality are those questions, those big mm -hmm. metaphysical questions and and why we care, what in us draws us to them, what in us wakes up in response to those philosophical uh, openings. And so that was my undergrad. And then I went to Montana and I got two master's degrees, one in environmental philosophy and another in eco-critical literature, which is basically environmental literature. I think of it, it's it it occupies a similar domain as something like if you were to get a degree in uh like post-colonial literature or or um like feminist critique or something. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. the environmental emphasis on how the things we create in culture um express certain attitudes or perspectives towards the environment mm, right. and how that's shaped by by culture so mm -hmm. yeah i i did um and we can get into this in more detail um i'm sure in whatever way uh in whatever way you want um my undergrad honors project was on what i call the deep imagination which is the mm. the things that upwell from the imagination that we do not own or control and like the I talk unconscious, about the unconscious. Exactly. Right, I, I talk about improvisation and how when when we let things out spontaneously, they come from a part of us that we do not have domain over. And I also talk mm. about Carl Jung in the Red Book. Oh, and beautiful. What about I have it right here. I have uh, every, I, I've had every time you talk, <laughs> you, you just add more stuff that I'm into as well. So, <laughs> oh, man, great. Kendall, with your first message and you were talking about <laughs> wanting to discuss uh, idealism, that's something that I've been getting into. Mm in a in a very unexpected way lately i was very surprised to see that there there's so many things in what in your questions that i was like oh man this is going to be fun um yeah so i that was my undergrad project 
And my environmental philosophy master's thesis was on the phenomenology of wonder. So mm -hmm. what exactly is wonder? What is wonder like? What is what is the experience of wonder on a mm -hmm. on a deeply subjective mm -hmm. looking inward way? Because phenomenology is that branch of philosophy that asks not like metaphysics, what is the world made of or what mm. what you know what exists out there or like ethics what, what what ought we do how ought we live but asks instead what is it like what is it like to be human that was heidegger's big question mm. or what is it like to to be a bat um that which is a a paper by thomas nagel um and so i'm really interested in what is it like to feel wonder what is it like to experience the imagination what is it like to be enchanted what is it like to be more vitally alive than we feel mm. ourselves to be most of the time. And like what, cause it, it, yeah, I could just keep going. I feel like if I stop here and let you <laughs> jump <laughs> no, that, in with more specifics, that'll, that'll help guide me. But yeah. Yeah, no, that that's great. great. Um, actually my first vacation with my family mm. was to Montana and the Glacier National Park. And it was just gorgeous. Oh, gorgeous there. First 14 year climb, saw a mountain goat, um, mm -hmm. just going along that road. And there's just mounds of snow on each side, like a wall. Um, yeah wow. it was amazing and um we've gone on a lot of more vacations we usually like to go somewhere in nature and mountains and um so, so that's a great place <laughs> to oh, study environmental things it's beautiful it's beautiful mm -hmm. um you mentioned mountain goats i love like they're so funny to me because they the way that they can stand like really <laughs> right the way they just walk through i've seen some videos i've seen some out there too and walking on the side of cliffs and, and you're just yeah like how they do that it really and the casualness with which they do it. I mean, mm -hmm. you can you can look at their face. You know, they're totally <laughs> unimpressed with what they're doing. They're just like, this is you know, what what are you what are you looking at? What are you looking mm -hmm. at? You silly little human! You can't do this. What do you mean? <laughs> I. It really reminds you how many ways there are to experience the world. Like that mm -hmm. looks like a cliff to us. That would be a huge challenge right. to them. It's a it's a Saturday, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, thinking about my own journey i mean i think that was a big part of it as far as like me getting into nature and ecology um also an undergrad i was uh an english major and i was mm -hmm. doing lord of the rings i was a huge fan and a lot of the research i was researching about was on ecology and the environment and how tolkien was so you know into nature and kind of gave a, a bad light on technology and that um mm -hmm. yeah that disconnection or the the destruction of of nature so um I think it just sparked my interest even more. So, uh, yeah, and I love that um, the the psychological dimensions of religion. That that sounds amazing. Um, you know, my grad, uh, I was in grad school for psychology for a while, and um, at the same time, I was going through my spiritual journey. So I was kind of getting that side by side a little bit. Um, so uh, I, I think that's all all great. I'm so excited that you mentioned Tolkien. Um, mm -hmm. I there's this there's this woman Becca Tarnas who's the daughter of Richard Tarnas who used to teach at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He wrote a book called Cosmos and Psyche. Mm -hmm. His daughter has a talk called The Red Book and the Red Book, and it's about the Red Book of Westmarch, which is what the in universe oh, right. version of mm -hmm. the the Lord of the Rings is. You know, that's what mm -hmm. Frodo was writing in and right. Bilbo before him, and. Uh, or I think it was, I think, did he yes. write the, the red book or was that an after an after? No, he, he did. He was the one that read it. It was for me as a nerd on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and and Carl Jung's Red Book and the mm-hmm. the the deep imaginal nature of Middle Earth. Middle Earth as mm-hmm. a character, um, and I. One of my favorite Tolkien quotes is actually from his 1937 essay on fairy stories. And he speaks about enchantment. And what I love about this quote, which I'm going to get approximately right, but not perfectly right, is is it really brings in our ourselves into the the feeling of enchantment. Um, It's not just, and and fantasy. He says, says, uh, fairy contains many things not just elves and dwarves dragons and 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 fairies uh but also water and bread moon and sun and ourselves mortal man when we are enchanted mm. that idea that that it's not just an outward thing it's not just that and this was in my investigations into wonder mm-hmm. something one of the first things i came upon was that Wonder is not about the things that happen to you. It's not that there are certain things that are wondrous and certain things that aren't. Like a dragon mm-hmm. is wondrous, but a dog isn't. Mm-hmm. Wonder is a kind of openness to how you perceive something. Mm-hmm. And it's a certain way of opening oneself to the world. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, it's actually something in you that changes, not in the world that changes. Mm-hmm. The only difference between a fantastical world and Earth as it is to us is that we are used to this. And so we've developed this crust, this filter over the wonder and amazement that is inviting us in at every moment. Mm -hmm. But we keep thinking we need it's yeah. We keep getting externally motivated towards wonder. Like we need more Mm -hmm. things, but it's just Mm -hmm. a matter of what we, what rather our judgments and how we can Mm -hmm. open those up, crack those open a little bit, unlock that door, Mm -hmm. see things in a new way. Right. Yeah. That's great. I think of wonder as a, combination of curiosity and awe i think um and i grew up um, reading tons of books reading a lot of fiction and i think that one of the biggest attractions i had to that was this sense of uh wonder and uh yeah i think that the part of the spiritual journey and goal is to find that wonder in everything um Hmm. whether it's amazing spiritual experiences or everyday life um so yeah that's great yeah, I I'm always trying to feel more wonder, always trying to challenge that. Um it's so easy to think that things have to be flat, have to be boring, mm-hmm. have to be just what they are. There's a lot of reductionistic outlooks that seem to want us to flatten the world into just one kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Matter, machine, stuff. Mm-hmm. This goopy nothingness right it doesn't and 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 the difference between things all dissolves when we see the mm-hmm. world that way mm-hmm. but that i think something i i feel very strongly is that even though that sort of cold-headed rationalism presents itself as a perspective that avoids projection like that that's you know it's just it's just sort of i don't care what the world is i am not trying to put my own view of what it is onto it mm-hmm. um i am just seeing it as it is and it just turns out it's not interesting right mm-hmm. like that, that's, <laughs> that seems to be the perspective right and i don't mean this is not at all a diss to to all rationalists or people who are um who focus on the mechanism of the world or focus on the the 
the world as a machine, the way in which it's like a machine, because many of those people, the actual scientists who are going out and investigating how stuff works, are some of the most deeply enchanted people. Rachel mm. Carson wrote a lot about the enchantment uh, in doing science and observation. But it's more so the public consciousness perception of the world that is just machine, mm -hmm. just a bunch of stuff banging around. Mm -hmm. And again, there's that idea that that's not projection, that that's just a sort of objective look at how things are. But I think it is projection. It's a uh, Stephen Howard Buhner, I think, is the one who originally put it this way, that there is that everyone's so afraid of anthropomorphizing. But why aren't we afraid of mechanomorphizing? That a machine is just as much a human creation as humans are are biological beings. And, mm -hmm. and when we say the universe is just a machine, that's as much a projection of a metaphor or an image as saying that it's all alive or right. it's all right. Whatever. Like it's yeah, it comes from a certain attitude towards things mm -hmm. that there are reason to think is just as untenable in some way as or right. falls short of the real picture as much as a kind of delusional over enchantment might too. Like, like mm -hmm. you know, believing that in, in everything, right. Could. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, uh, it makes me think of, uh, conversations I've had with people about, uh, this idea of we live in the matrix, you know, we live mm. in a simulation or whatever. And <laughs> I think they were very put off against that. Um, and and I get it because it is kind of this mechanical computer way to think about it. But it's like, well, we're we got the idea about computers and stuff like that from from nature. Like everything is related, is connected, and so um, that it's not a uh, so black and white like you know nature versus computers and and mechanical. So um, yeah, it's just kind of funny. Mm -hmm. Um, I. This is a good segue, but I I want to go back real real quick um, and ask you about kind of your religious or spiritual or non-religious spiritual upbringing and mm -hmm. how that plays into your beliefs or coming to ecology. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up as an only child in the woods, pretty isolated, with two parents who were are um old hippies mm -hmm. and i and my mom is she worked at the bronx zoo for 19 years before she had me and then i was just another of the exotic animals she <laughs> life and raising uh -huh. i've been I, to the bronx I, zoo it's really nice oh it is it is nice it's a good zoo mm -hmm. yeah um and so i think in middle school i counted the amount of pets or animals that we had around the house. And I counted somewhere in the sixties or seventies. Oh, wow. Uh, so we had fish, we had chickens, we had ferrets, we had an Australian sugar glider. We had a couple of parrots, we had cats, we had dogs, we had horses. Uh, we had, I'm sure I'm forgetting a bunch. Uh, my mm -hmm. mom would come to my elementary school classrooms, like one day out of every year and give a, a demonstration all the kids of all of these different animals that she'd borrow oh. from her friends at the zoo like <laughs> she'd show all the kids madagascar hissing cockroaches oh, and snakes and everything so my love of nature is very much influenced by her and i grew mm -hmm. up surrounded by the woods and i'd go off alone and be in the woods a lot um and i uh and my, my dad meanwhile um 
is a very he has a little bit of that spark behind the eyes that the Taoist sages probably do, where he just is mm. comfortable dancing in these paradoxes mm. and will just mm-hmm. say something wise out of nowhere. And yeah, so my I was thinking about Taoism today. In, yeah. I was like, that Taoism really connects <laughs> with nature as well. So yeah, yeah, and and he's he's a wizard. Like when mm. I was younger, he would he would always my parents would always encourage my imagination too. So mm. um, I remember my dad taking a a walking stick of his that looks like a gnarled staff and just being like. Hey, watch this, and just pointing at the fire, and the flames would would surge, and just and then just he'd just walk away and say nothing. And you know, I'm sure I don't know if he threw something in there uh-huh. or if he was, but he was just very playful. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I grew up in this in this environment, and um, yeah, I'm also excited to talk about Taoism. I've been I've been reading Chuang Tzu and, and Lao Tzu quite a bit. Ursula K. Le Guin's translation of the Tao Te Ching is something I've been getting mm, really into. Yeah, I want to get into that some, at some point. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, favorite quote of hers. Um, this is a tangent from the personal mm-hmm, question thing, sure. but one of my favorite quotes of all time is is an Ursula K. Le Guin quote. She said, "Those who don't believe in dragons are often eaten by dragons from within." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, favorites. I've heard of that. That kind of goes with the young talking about the need to explore our unconscious and and the dark side and everything like that, or yeah. be overtaken by it. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, a young quote I really like in that regard is repression is as much a cure for the problems that the shadow brings as beheading is a cure for the headache. <laughs> you need to, you need to make, you need to see this all as a part of you. Right. You need I love to let it, You need to really grapple with all this. You need to mm-hmm. go into those depths. You need to plunge into the ocean. You need to, to spelunk in those caves of the unconscious of the imagery of the deep imagination or else you're not ever going to live your full life. You're not going to mm-hmm. commit to the fullness of life. You're not going to say yes to the serpent as Joseph Campbell has framed mm-hmm. it. But mm-hmm. uh, so when I was younger, yeah, I I would go off into the woods alone a lot. And I mean, my parents, I think, understand me a lot more than I, than I thought they did then when I was a kid, mm-hmm. but I was definitely one of those only children being like, nobody understands me i'm so deep uh and i felt the same way and i wasn't only child so (laughs) oh great yeah yeah so you know you know the you know the experience and the Mm -hmm. some of the embarrassment of it (laughs) so yeah i i would go off alone though and and really feel connected to the woods in a way that was always so special to me and not only was i i would wander off i'd be singing, I'd be dancing, I'd be just praying or moving and not really have any rational basis for it, not have any set of beliefs or set mm-hmm. of or tradition or anything that any of this was coming out of. I just had images that resonated with me. I was I was very much dancing in the deep unconscious. Like mm-hmm. that was what was coming through me. And mm-hmm. I I believe that the unconscious is not a personal unconscious or even a collective human unconscious the way that Jung mm-hmm. started to explore it later in his life. But a world unconscious, an imagination of the earth that surges through each of us, that is my interpretation of the Tao, is is this imagination of being that wants to express itself spontaneously through you in some certain way. And following that river Mm. is how you get there. And so I, I was very comfortable in that space as a child. And especially when it came to imaginary play. And I would often bring friends into my imaginary worlds, into the woods, and be like, this is what we're going to be. This is where we're going. 
And I think that most kids fairly quickly transition from my dolls are alive and my imaginary friends are real to mm. let's play a game and pretend those things are real. Mm. And I transitioned out of that phase much, much later than I think mm. most kids did. And so I was that that kid in middle school who was saying, no, I actually go to other worlds in the woods and mm. you should believe that I'm telling the <laughs> truth. Uh-huh. And I will, I will bring you there, and you will see that we're on another, we're in another place, mm-hmm. we're in another dimension, and that that thing over there that looked like a flash of darkness against the hill slightly, that's actually a monster, and it is mm. coming after us. And this is not pretend. This is mm-hmm. not a game we're playing. And I, I still feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do you feel like that was a good thing or bad thing? So. What I think was happening was that my younger self was picking up on a deep intuitive truth that I didn't have the language to communicate to others. And Mm -hmm. that truth was that what some people call the imagination and dismiss as mere fiction, as Mm -hmm. less real than the physical immediate world or I shouldn't say immediate, the imagination could be very immediate, but the physical, the surfaces of things, right, right? the world right. of things among things. Mm-hmm. People speak of the imagination as a projected, very uh, sub... Uh, it's something we come, up, we, can, yeah. we come up with instead of it being inside of us that we're discovering that's already there. Is mm. that... Yes, but I wouldn't even say inside of us because okay. I think it's found in collaboration. It's an interstitial thing. It's a mm-hmm. mind that I there's this there's this woman. I believe her name is Edith Cobb. I think she's a developmental psychologist mm-hmm. I've heard of who her. wrote who wrote a book, Edith Cobb or Edith. It, it's Edith something. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's similar people with uh, a similar last names. There's an anthropologist mm-hmm. uh, with a similar name. But so I'm not sure if I'm going to get the name right. But she wrote a book or a, an article that was about the the child playing in the woods is fulfilling an ecological niche mm. because there's a kind of openness or movement with the things of the world, picking up each thing, picking up a stick, moving things here, saying hi to a mushroom, sprinkling leaves on a tree, doing like just playing in that space that moves things around in the ecosystem and speaking phenomenal, phenomenologically of that as a kind of a kind of ecological service or a sort of mm. a sort of participation in something larger than oneself a psychological mm. immersion into a larger mind into what Huxley mm. Aldous Huxley calls big mind mm-hmm. and i i guess the intuition put simply that i think i had as a kid was that the imagination is real the mm-hmm. imagination is not fake right and our cultural model of reality essentially allows for an objective world we can all share that is not in any way imaginary and a subjective world where things like myth stories imagination lives and so it's very personal it's like i can imagine mm. those things maybe they have meaning to me and mm-hmm. even some people when they talk even i don't think jung but some of the ways that jung is interpreted is even taken this way where where it's like it matters to you but not to me 
what you're mm-hmm. experiencing in your dreams or in your mm-hmm. uh, in your imaginary worlds or in your mm-hmm. fantasies. It matters to you, but not to me. And I very strongly had this intuition that it mattered. It matters to everybody that there's a dragon on that mountain. Mm-hmm. It matters to everybody. Mm. And there's some way in which there is a truth to that. And right. I didn't have the way to 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 frame that as a kid. And so mm-hmm. the way it came out was, no, it's literally real. We are mm-hmm. going to another world. Mm-hmm. And I've come to a more nuanced understanding of it now, but right. that was where I think it came from. So in some sense, yes, arrested development for sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> not, not as socialized as some of the uh-huh. other teams. Being like, no, 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 the, my imaginary mm-hmm. worlds are real, believe me. Mm-hmm. But I think I was tapping into something that I deeply felt to be and still deeply feel to be true. Right. Yeah. I, I think going back to Campbell, you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, I, I first read him in colleges uh, as well. And um, he goes into collective symbols. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what fiction is all about, finding these connections um, between us all. And and mm-hmm. that they are true in inside of us. And, and, and together, we... we that's how we connect as we find these these connections these similarities um and it is very important um so yeah that's great yeah yeah i think that's exactly it it's it's how we connect and it's it's how the world itself connects with us i think Mm -hmm. one of the reasons i try to flip the script on the interiority of these images thinking it's like it's what brings human minds together or it's how it's it's symbols that human minds all share is that the weight of those symbols, I mean, those symbols are in images. Mm-hmm. Let's just to take a simple example, let's say the idea of uh, a jagged rock as a symbol for um, harshness mm-hmm. or aggression. Like if you see, if you imagine a character who is uh, covered in jagged armor, jagged stone, you know, that's you, you get a archetypal sense of this kind of aggressiveness, this pain, um, and probably someone who's who's sharp, who's uh, brutal, but we need sharp rocks for sharp words to even make sense as a metaphor. Mm. And so it's the world outside of us that we're in collaboration with to create these symbols. It's not human beings that invent symbols at one point Mm. and then kind of plop them like a virus into the minds of of everyone else. It's not, Mm -hmm. I mean, I... I understand the it, it's it, yeah I, I guess I think this is one of the reasons that Richard Dawkins has such a hard time understanding spirituality is because his book on memes is based on this notion that that ideas spiritual notions symbols all these things are like infectious memes that just move from one person to another by human interaction but I think mm. it's I think it's something behind that there's a world behind that there's a world mm-hmm. of moving images right. that is not human mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is the the non-human world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's a wonderful interpretation of dragons and why we why we have such a why dragons appear and reappear all over the world in all in, in, in like every culture's mythology oh, right, it's a right. dragon mm-hmm. and it's that it's a combination of three predators that our early primate ancestors would have had to deal with the snake, mm-hmm. the eagle, and the big cat. And if you think of dragons, there's always they're always cat-like. 
Mm. Um, and they're they're scaled like a snake, and they they have they have breath weapons in D and D terms, mm. right? Like a mm-hmm. like a serpent's bite. Uh, and they fly, and so they're they're all of these, but they're they are all of that, and mm-hmm. they are a force in and of themselves that points to so many other symbols that's transparent mm-hmm. with their own meaning. Uh, Fritjof Schwan, who is a scholar of religion, has a really dense and weird little article called The Symbolic Mind. And he he talks about how we tend to think that metaphorical meaning is imposed onto things, that someone who thinks metaphorically is saying, I'm going to draw a link, build a bridge between these two ideas. Like, for instance, um, a good example is a stop sign. There's a stop sign and it tells you to stop. So there's this, this hexagon that's red and it's telling you to, uh, to, to, to stop moving. And so those ideas of stopping moving and the hexagon that's red are just, there's a bridge built between them. There's nothing mm-hmm. that the red hexagon immediately says about stopping. Right. We have to cre- construct that meaning. Uh-huh. But a symbol is different. A symbol, the reason water means flow. And when you're in flow, you're like water is not because we've created that connection, mm-hmm. but because the two share a real sympathetic resonance in the right. world outside of human association. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so- You're you're basically talking about like ontology and like there's this ground of truth Mm. beneath the surface of things. Absolutely. Yeah. I, my favorite thing to say is that the other world is this world. I feel like I say it over and over and sound like a broken record. And I think the other world, the world of myth, the world of symbol, the world of metaphor is a dimension of depth of our world. It's the in-between of our world. It's the inside of our world the hunter in Celtic mythology who sees a white stag and runs off and then crawls into a fox burrow and crawls out the other side in a very unfamiliar place has come to exactly the same place where he started. But everything is lit up with this vibrancy and newness because he's seeing the resonances of things between things, the Mm -hmm. world between the worlds, not beyond the world, not another world, not a different world. But this world, as it is rightly seen, when we open ourselves to the wonder of many things becoming other things, of their of of unfolding into their own metaphors. Like when I was mm. a kid and picked up a stick in the forest, that stick became a sword because it was straight and long and made a whooshing sound. Those mm. are traits of the stick. It unfolded into its own metaphors through the relationship that I had with it. Mm-hmm. But that sword is in the stick. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's beautiful. That's great. So um this is great. Continue with your with your story of of growing up. So did mm. you did you have a particular religion or anything like that, that your parents taught you or you just kind of No, as far as religion, my mom was raised Irish Catholic until her mm. father said fuck the church because they were asking for too much money. <laughs> and so she never really grew up with much religion. My dad was raised culturally Jewish. And so I grew up with the typical American Jewish, like the menorah next to the Christmas tree, but mm-hmm. no real religion. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I did go to Buddhist Sunday school when I was six. Uh, and I remember one particular meditation lesson where we were asked to close our eyes and 
see in the sparks behind the blacks of our eyelids many possible universes mm. and go into each one of those universes and see what that might be like. And I feel like that was a good spark mm. of my early childhood imagination. And um, yeah, so I I was raised in that very loose way. As I got older and I, I never lost my spiritual connection to nature, but as I got older, I sort of became split down the middle where I became very interested in philosophy and very interested in the way that people were manipulating people with religion and with mm. fundamentalism and mm. the way that cults worked and the way that, and, and so I became a very loud atheist mm -hmm. in high school and early college, while at the same time having a very profound personal spiritual relationship mm -hmm. with the more than human world that I couldn't frame, that had a, a, a very, it came from a very non-rational place. It wasn't grounded in, mm -hmm. it was just like, this is something in me I can't control. It's there. And it's, honestly, what I care about more than anything, it's like the center in me. It's the small green glowing stone at the core of my soul. But also religion is bullshit and spirituality is bullshit and all this. So I was like this very <laughs> weird base uh, within myself, this cognitive right. dissonance that I was only able to really find the roots of connection to uh, when I um, became exposed to animism and to the foundations of a more uh of a more nuanced the you, you found that there was yeah. um there was structures there was belief systems that incorporated what you believed in but still had some rationality and some um formation some map making yeah or even got to the the kinds of truths that are behind the split mm -hmm. between metaphor and literal truth right? that are something below or beneath. And this is what I think all of the mystics of every religious tradition are, are getting at. Like every, every parable in Chuang Tzu begins with a normal conversation and descends into just language as gibbering inanity is how <laughs> uh, Burton Watson puts mm -hmm. it, where it just, you can't you cannot describe the things that are indescribable but mm. they're still there like right there's nothing more spiritual than the miracle of the fact that there is something that mm -hmm. there is a reality and it's like you can't the people who and i think i was sort of led into this feeling when i was younger of of we have reality figured out <laughs> uh and and all of those those intuitions that there's something deeper are just human foible and then at a certain point i just saw through that i just was like that's that's a that's a scheme over mm -hmm. something that that just that's a swage our fear of the yeah. unknown or mm -hmm. you know uh, yeah there's a difference between the unknown and the unknowable I think mm. is what I like the the real mystery is in the unknowable mm -hmm. is in what's is in that raw unconditioned reality, that flow of being that life itself, that miracle of becoming. Mm -hmm. And that's something that all of our boxes, all of our containers that we try to put the world in all of our labels, all of our Solomon seals to contain the threatening 
demonic to you know chaos of reality mm -hmm. uh in the sense of just solomon trying to trap demons not that i think anything in the expressive real is actually demonic but but we we try to contain it we try to trap it in mm -hmm. concepts and saying oh i know what a tree is do you know what a tree is have you looked at a tree have you seen i mean what is that mm -hmm. yeah anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> no yeah. Uh, Siddhartha says uh, in 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 Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, like wisdom. When whenever somebody tries to speak wisdom, it sounds like foolishness. And I feel like <laughs> that every time I'm trying to teach about mysticism, I feel like I am not making sense. This right. <laughs> this is this is never going to make sense. Right. How I say it basically is that uh, mystics were uh, not tied to the ideas and and belief systems, but tied to the experience of God mm -hmm. or the transcendent, um, whatever you want to call it. And so in that experience they realize that it is beyond expression so any words or um you know belief systems um theology whatever we put behind that it's never going to to match up it's never going to measure up it's never going to be able to describe or totally understand so we don't have to be so tied to these things we don't have to get dogmatic or fundamental and fight against each other about who has the best symbology of something mm. inexpressible there's a Buddhist parable, don't mistake the moon for the finger pointing to the moon. Mm, right. I also like how Paul Tillich, the Protestant theologian, mm. says it, God is a symbol for God. <laughs> That's that. one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, Master Eckhart says, I pray God rid me of God. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's right. It is the experience because ultimately, and this is this is what what got me interested in phenomenology was realizing that the world of experience is the first and only actual world. And even the world of fact, Thoreau said, if I ever meet a fact, it would cut me through the middle. Like you can't, you can't actually, it would slice me in two or something. He uh -huh. said it would be so sharp as a sword or something uh -huh. like that. Like he, but this idea that we think that there is, uh, we think that the things that are most true, I guess I'll put it that way, are facts, are mm -hmm. our, our ideas about the world. Mm -hmm. Um, things that, that are the way that they are in a certain, like that, that apples are apples, trees are trees, um, two plus two equals four, mm -hmm. but these are concepts that we encounter from a, a, an indescribable, ineffable, qualitative, conscious experience. So even the most rigorous scientific data is collected by experiencing beings, read by experiencing beings, and interpreted by experiencing beings. And the data as itself, as untainted by the subjective and the um the the ambiguous and the indescribable doesn't exist it's not just that bias will always sneak its way into everything it's that bias if we want to use the word bias is the fundamental nature of existence like it's it's <laughs> right. like i mean it's not peripheral mm -hmm. right it's not like it's not like oh this might be slightly affected by who i am or my experience it's no it's anything objective i am i encounter is subjectively encountered objectivity so it's not, we have this illusion, and I think this is the illusion we're under in 
uh, in the philosophy of rationalism is mm -hmm. that we can occupy some God's eye perspective on the world, mm, yeah. but we can't. We're mm -hmm. always in the world. <laughs> All of our right. imaginings of looking at things objectively are imaginings of doing so. Mm. They're made up of sensations, images, sounds, smells, and tastes. They're they're not they're not made up of truths. They're not made up mm -hmm. of ideas. There's no such thing as an idea. There's yeah. such thing as images that come through in a slightly more ephemeral or intangible way as the sort that I can touch or show to you. But those are images. Those are not mm -hmm. ideas. There's no such mm -hmm. thing. There's no such yeah. thing as a thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's great. Um, so, so you were an atheist, and then you came to uh, a more nuanced or better perspective. Um, and then you got in. You got your degrees. Is that is that kind of how it happened? I guess so. Yeah, I. I hesitate to say was an atheist or, I mean, I, I don't, it's hard for me to put any labels on myself mm -hmm. in terms of beliefs. And when right. people ask me about what I believe, I always hem and haw about it and don't give a straight answer and talk about uh -huh. symbols instead because, uh -huh. and actually it's the same answer um, when it, as, as the whole qualitative experience thing, ineffable, you know, you is that beliefs are concepts. Beliefs are what kind of claim do you want to make about objective reality? And all I can say is I have my experience and I, I, Carl Jung, I think said, I don't believe in God. I know God. Mm -hmm, and people right. can interpret that as, as, oh, he's so certain. Right. But no, he's just, he's not saying he believe. he might, he might say, I don't believe in God. I just mm -hmm. know God. Like I, 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 God doesn't exist. But I've also met God, you know, that kind of, and that's, that's when the mystics start to start to uh, talk in a way that many people Buddhist think sounds like nonsense. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's, but it's accurate. I mean, that's the real, that's, I think all we can do is, is play in that paradox. Mm -hmm. And so I, the real magic for me is found in experience and in mm -hmm. states of consciousness and in ways of experiencing the world, ways of opening mm -hmm. ourselves up to different experiences of the world. Mm -hmm. And if I were to call myself anything, that could be interpreted as a belief. It would be an animist. But my friend David Abram, who wrote The Spell of the Sensuous, uh, makes the really important point that animism is, is not actually a belief system to those who, not in the same way that we tend to think of it as, mm -hmm. uh, to those who practice it. Like uh, Christian sorry, mission. Def define, oh, sorry. De you just define animism real quick. For so animism... And this is kind of the trouble is that animism <laughs> right. has been has been just defined by anthropologists influenced by Christian missionaries who would go into indigenous societies mm -hmm. uh, as the belief of spirits in nature. Mm -hmm. So the belief that there's a spirit in the river, there's a spirit in the mountain, there's a spirit in the tree, there's a spirit in the rock. And animism was defined this way by, well, actually, funny enough. The definition of animism in the dictionary, uh, Josh Shry points this out in, a, in an episode of The Emeralds called Animism is Normative Consciousness. And if you haven't heard of that podcast, it's it's a good one. Josh does a really, really good job crafting this, this space of experience for his thinking. In, in that episode, he, he points out that the dictionary definition of animism is the attribution of a soul to inanimate objects, which 
is a definition mm. of a word that already points out that the word is it that the that the thing is an error. So it's like animism has no chance to prove itself as true mm -hmm. if the definition of it is that those things are already inanimate. But right, getting back right. to the yeah. <laughs> so it's so it's just kind of an irony mm -hmm. there, like with our with our paradox. Yeah. So um anyway, getting back to the misinterpretations, the the missionaries coming in to indigenous cultures assumed that they were seeing cults revolving around a spiritual world of beings that inhabited natural things. Because from the Christian perspective, there is the earthly plane, and mm -hmm. then there is the spiritual world. And right. spirit and matter are two distinct substances. Uh -huh. They're two distinct universes. Mm -hmm. And dualists. It's very dualistic, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have souls, but we're not our souls. And, mm -hmm. and so they naturally interpreted the discussion of an intelligence and awareness of the more than human world and ways of speaking about that world that that portray trees, rivers, stories, mm -hmm. dreams, words, uh, mountains, clouds, fire as persons instead of objects as mm -hmm. believing that there must be, oh, well, the fire is just a fire, but maybe they mean that there's a person inside the fire, right? <laughs> so it's like, no, because that's the only way you could conceptualize right. it within a dualistic metaphysics. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So this so is, is anima animism. Is that, could you say that's parallel to like pantheism? It is parallel to pantheism. The difference is that pantheism, and I think this is also where like you could find a pantheistic animist and animistic pantheist. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not a clean distinction whatsoever, but pantheism the fundamental assumption is that God is the universe. Right. So it it kind of creates a oneness of creation, mm -hmm. like everything's an expression of the divine. Mm -hmm. Animism emphasizes the particularity and otherness and alterity of all the forms of creation. So mm. everything, it, it's it doesn't make a statement necessarily about the universe. Animism mm. is more concerned with the locality of your own experience and the beings you encounter there. So mm. the river by your village, what kind of person is it? What kind of personality is it? What sort of things does it like? What sort of words does it like to hear? What can it offer to you? What can it do to you? What can it do for you? Mm. Um, and so it's more of a particular relational development um, mm. than, than something that that's, that's like pantheism is is often framed as a kind of uh as a theology as a mm -hmm. as a as a way of understanding the cosmos right okay yeah interesting mm -hmm. but the two can totally totally overlap right, um, right. Mm -hmm. yeah mary jane rubenstein wrote a great book called pantheologies which i'm still making my way through but which is a fantastic look at how pantheism <laughs> throughout most of history has only been attacked like it's actually so hard to find any like nowadays people talk about pantheism positively. Mm -hmm. But if you look to where people were coining that term and talking about that term in Western history, it's like everybody's just saying, well, at least I'm not a pantheist. At least I'm not a dirty pantheist. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and Spinoza getting accused aggressively of being a pantheist. All right. Uh -huh. Saying God is nature. It's oh, it's mm -hmm. just yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm a a little coming from a Christian tradition, I'm a little mm. more comfortable with panentheism. Um mm. saying God is within all things, but he's also beyond all things. He is the ground of yeah. all being. So God is but, at least the universe. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I don't know, but the, but the more I go along, I'm not sure I see the clear distinctions between pantheism and panentheism. So mm. it's, uh, it's interesting. 
Um, so one question, uh, how has modern society become so disconnected from nature? Ooh, that is a heavy question. <laughs> that is a so many layered question. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, what angle to come at that with? Um, you did mention integral studies, and I'm a big fan of spiral dynamics. I don't of know what? if you spiral dynamics. I don't actually, okay. I don't know what that is. All right, don't worry about it. I'm interested. Come at it from your angle. <laughs> <laughs> I, all right, so. I think one one way to perhaps oh man this is I feel like I'm 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 having one of those do you, do you want me to go first having a hundred thoughts <laughs> at the same time and uh, I need to find the narrow right I, so, I get that yeah if you want to ask a more specific okay. part of that or or, 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 or do you want me to give perspective you, yes you want me to answer my question and then you go off of that beautiful okay you're now you're the interviewer now and I'm the <laughs> <laughs> uh, we switch places Excellent. um yeah so i mean uh from a spiral dynamics perspective uh stages of consciousness um uh a psychological or sociological understanding or look at history um of humanity um there there was kind of this um kind of what we've been talking about the animism pantheism um uh, indigenous um tribes and mm -hmm. how they kind of viewed the world and then there uh was this kind of power genghis khan kind of this um clans becoming uh together and mm. and and then it got into like middle ages and then there was society formed in those institutions uh church and um and then we get into the Enlightenment period, and that's when, oh, hey, we have rationalism, we have logic, um, we are beginning to separate science and spirituality, and beginning to separate religion from science, and I think that that's kind of the, the start of um, where you can really see maybe the start of disconnect from, from nature and uh, science, and especially like the Western world, like, Oh, science is the uh, um, measurement of of the physical, and we lose mm. that deeper layer that we've been talking about. And it's all about um, the differences between things rather than the connection between all things. Um, mm. And like you said, that rationalism and um, and and scientific materialism. Uh, so that's just a few thoughts. Yeah, I think there's a lot of good thoughts there. I mean, it there's it it definitely is something that happened in stages, right? Where mm -hmm. where there was more of a connection, more of a sense of of uh, a dynamic of relationality and equal interchange between the human and more than human worlds, and then that became so we became more focused on the human mm -hmm. um, over long periods of time. Whether that's as you said into clans into cities into more organized religious structures that viewed humans as having a special or privileged place in creation like the development mm -hmm. of the scala natura in medieval christian education where you have god angels man mm. woman beast. hierarchy yeah. yeah the hierarchy we create mm -hmm. this ladder um and then the enlightenment just cuts off the top couple rungs of that of that ladder but mm. keeps the structure in place mm. so you just got man at the top as god right, right? Mm -hmm. as as 
as the, that's where we get the illusion that we have this God's eye perspective is we've educated mm. ourselves to believe that we are in that, um, you know, that position, uh, that we have the ability to, to exert that sort of control when really mm. we're just one part of a, of a world, not, mm-hmm. not the whole world. Um, and I think I am inclined to locate the origin of the disconnect probably with agriculture and static settlement mm. and the development of the first walled cities. Yeah, because... I was about to say, sorry, interrupting, but just like no. the as we discover things, inventions, it's like, oh, we have power over nature and then. Also, now we have um, cities and and buildings and stuff, and so we're not within nature, mm-hmm. uh, the the wild outside as much. So it's a natural kind of disconnect from that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's what you, where you are. It, it only comes back to experience. It's like where mm-hmm. you are is what is the world that you see. If you right. live your life behind walls, you're going to see what's outside those walls is separate from you. Mm-hmm. If you live your life out in the world, out in nature, out in a forest, you're not going to see the forest as separate from you, but mm-hmm. it's about what you experience. And there's a great, uh, there's a great article on this in the, the kind of the psychological effects that cities have called nature and madness. Um, or no, that's Paul Shepard. That's a different, um, that's also a wonderful, interesting article. He's a, a philosopher, but there's another one in the, in a, that I'm forgetting the author of, but that talks about the, the psychological effects of being in cities and how that must have caused mm. a split in consciousness for early humans. Mm. And we can see the, the radical different, the radically different attitudes towards agriculture and what agriculture means in our relationship to nature when we look at how agriculture has been has been received by colonized peoples when colonizers bring it over so there's the native american um smohala who when 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 asked to to teach farming and for his people to adopt farming um said you you asked me to take a knife to my mother's breast you asked me to cut into her flesh <laughs> mm-hmm. and at some point a little over 10,000 11,000 years ago human beings decided that that was an appropriate thing to do and there's lots of evidence to show that there wasn't a technological change that where people were like oh we can do this now so let's do it let's make farms mm. let's make agriculture mm-hmm. it was always a possibility it was something that some that a lot of cultures have integrated very slightly throughout uh history long before then or prehistory i guess long before then um but the change was the change was some possibly some catastrophe that led people to think that they needed to do this to survive, that they needed mm-hmm. to take care of themselves to survive because they'd been betrayed by the mm-hmm. natural world. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. I, I think that this is this is true, the sense of of resentment and betrayal and and anger that we have towards nature that's manifesting mm-hmm. in our destruction of it and still is a wound that's affecting us to this day, is in the way that if you look at myths, if you look at the uh the Enuma Elish, the creation myth of the Babylonians, mm-hmm. 
you have a creation myth that is in some ways, in a lot of ways, similar to a lot of indigenous creation myths that posit a sky and an earth god and goddess or a uh, like certain primordial gods that create human beings and create the world as it is. Um, but in the Enuma Elish, there is a second step. And it's very similar to the second step that happens in Greek mythology with the Titans in another similarly agricultural society, uh, which is Tiamat. So I'll, I'll briefly kind of kind of kind of uh mm-hmm. tell the myth. So there's two gods, there's Apsu and Tiamat, sweet water and briny water. Apsu is the void. Uh, Apsu is the sweet water, the empty water, the the emptiness, the nothingness. Mm-hmm. Tiamat is creation. She's life, the briny mm-hmm. water, right? Where algae mm-hmm. can grow. She's the mother of all things. She gives birth, the two of them as the primordial parents, give birth to creation, give birth to, uh, to the 10,000 things, as the Taoists would say. And Apsu, the void, at one point decides that he wants to, he can't sleep. Void wants to be in void, right? I mean, void wants the annihilation of all things. Void mm-hmm. wants stillness. And so he says to Tiamat, I can't sleep with all these gods you've you've made. Um, we should kill them. And Tiamat says, I'm not going to murder my children. And mm-hmm. steps back, she retreats. So that would have been the end of it. Except um, one of Apsu's advisors says, oh, you should. You should do it anyway, even though she doesn't want to. And one of the gods one of the godlings hears this and instead kills Apsu and makes from his body the heavens. Mm. And this is exactly like how Zeus mm-hmm. killed Cronus uh, in the Greek myths. And, and then Zeus became king of the gods. And this was, um, I think, I think uh, Enlil or El is the god that, that did this in the, in, in the Enuma Elish. But that creates a revolution that creates a revolution of the gods where now the gods are in control. Tiamat hears about this and she is now, she's often portrayed as a serpent, as a dragon. And dragons often represent the earth, often represent the world of life. She creates uh, an army of demons to attack and, and just, and, and get revenge for the killing of her husband, Apsu. And so uh, Marduk, the, one of the godlings, um, El's son. Mm-hmm. And I hope I'm getting it right. I think it's El and I think it's, I know it's Marduk. Uh, Marduk, this masculine hero, goes out fully armed with, with powerful weapons and supernatural abilities and cuts through Tiamat's army of demons and slays his grandmother, Tiamat. And from her body, from her tears, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers flow. And from her body, he makes the earth. And then from her commander, he sacrifices her first commander to make humankind to serve the gods. And his seat is in the central temple in Babylon, in a Babylon of the gods above or beyond or behind Babylon. And then the city of Babylon becomes a way of honoring the triumph of the warlike masculine cohort of child gods over nature. Mm. And I think this is a mythological retelling of what it means to build a walled city. And it and the, and something in that myth, the betrayal of Tiamat, makes me think there must have been some 
something to make people feel like even though all our lives got shorter and worse and diseased after we settled and and developed agrarian uh, mm-hmm. communities, this was all we could do to survive. And I, yeah, I, I can't help but think that that resentment sticks with us. And mm. the interpretations of the dragon, I mean, of, of life in in China, that that split never happened in the same way. And so you have the dragons as rivers, the dragons as the water cycle, the dragons as, mm. a, as eternity, the dragons as the flow of the Tao. You don't have that mother betraying her her children and them resentfully mm-hmm. having power over her for the rest of history in the mm-hmm. same way you do uh in the fertile crescent yeah that's fascinating <laughs> that's really interesting um hmm. yeah yeah that's i don't know what to i don't know what to say that's just interesting i'll have to think about that that's really really cool um i i do know you know from my from my own upbringing um, Christianity uh, and the Christi- Christian um, in Genesis talking about uh, God creating the earth and uh, creating Adam and Eve, the first two uh, humans, and telling them um, to have dominion over over nature and to to rule it. And then um, because Eve ate the apple, sin came in the world, mm-hmm. and kind of like you're talking about this n- distrust, this uh, unsafety. Um, mm-hmm. and that now man has to till the earth and he has to work hard and he has to sweat and, um, women have to birth child and, and have mm-hmm. that pain and stuff like that. So, um, that, that now there's this, um, work and this strife and, uh, and we have to dominate the earth and we, we can't, and now, now the, the snake tempted Eve to eat the apple now, mm-hmm animals we we can't trust them they they might be dangerous as well so um mm. this is interesting the the parallels there and so um you know i think we can agree and we're understanding that we're all within this ecological system to uh i i on one of my other podcasts i talk about evolution and how um you know that there's this idea of survival of the fittest but in this global perspective, um, survival is, hey, I survive because we're in relationship, because we're all in this together. Mm. So your survival is my survival. So let's uh, not think of it as, hey, we need to dominate the earth. We need to subdue it. We need to, yeah, rule over it. Let, let's protect it. Let's work in collaboration. Let's see ourselves as within this ecological system that um we need to protect and help so that it will survive and will survive we're all in this together i love all of that and a, a note on the on genesis and on the the command of mm-hmm. dominion and on the god of genesis as a whole so the the hebrews were in captivity in babylon before the writing down of the the old testament of the right. stock mm-hmm. and uh after after escaping babylon after becoming after after going into exile um the the old sages and this is why this is an old professor of mine's interpretation of this looked up at the seven celestial bodies seven visible celestial bodies the sun the moon and the five visible planets and for the Babylonians, those were seven gods that all had 
contributed to creation in some way. And so these old scribes said, you know, our God, our God can do everything those seven gods can do, but mm. he, do, he does what each one does for one day and he, can, and he even takes a break. <laughs> and um and uh but but the influence i guess i guess the the important part though is the influence of babylon here marduk has a lot of parallels to the god of genesis mm -hmm. as a king god mm. as a god that commands that controls and in one way a god that speaks the world into being that creates through command that creates as lord is like the Enuma Elish and this narrative of a creation and separation and of a of a of a you know we're protected behind these walls. Mm. It's just cuts out the prologue. It's it's like without the background of there was this revolution, there was this state before there was this separation. And so it begins with this separation. Uh and another thing is, have you read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Incredible book. I would really highly recommend it. She is a Potawatomi uh, ethnobotanist and poet. And she has, in the in the first chapter, she tells the story of her people, which is Sky Woman Falling. It's an Anishinaabe creation myth. And Sky Woman, uh, the first human, falls from the sky world pregnant. And the geese fly and catch her as she falls. And Turtle is there waiting and says, stand on my back and we'll go down and get earth for you to live in. Cause there's just water right now. There's just water and animals go down and, and, and grab things and try to grab things from the bottom of the ocean, but they don't make it back up in time. They all, uh, they all come back out of breath, unable to reach the ground. Um, and finally muskrat dives down and comes up dead, but in his fist is clutched a little clump of dirt and that from that dirt from that mud that muskrat sacrificed himself for sky woman dances on the back of the turtle and creates turtle island which is north america mm. and she had brought with her a bundle of seeds which she spread on the ground and created all of the plants all of the medicinal herbs and plants and and the green world and the animals all collaborate in creation with sky woman humans are necessary but so is everything else and humans are necessary as the youngest children of creation as the the youngest siblings that have a lot to learn but can do their part mm -hmm. but we're part of that whole system it's all mm -hmm. a network and she draws the direct parallel between or the the contrast i should say between sky woman falling and uh the story of adam and eve when she imagines the colonization of North America by Europe mm -hmm. as the meeting of these two women. Mm. And she imagines and imagines the world that Eve lives in and the world that Sky Woman lives in. In one case, in the in the former case, a fallen world where we must be in competition, just as you said, with everything we have to, we have to defeat the world, we have to come up on top. And Sky Woman never having left the garden. Right, never having gone anywhere else, mm -hmm. and I like the line she she uses when she imagines their dialogue for Sky Woman. She says, "Sky." She imagines Sky Woman saying to Eve, "Sister, you really got the short end of the stick. <laughs> like, like you've been traumatized. Like, mm -hmm. what's, yeah."
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is. It is really interesting to think about you know nature and the the world, uh, safe or unsafe. And um, I mean, you, you do see within nature like animals they they eat each other. They're they're in mm -hmm. competition to some degree, but and and we also you know have to protect ourselves and we eat animals and and even you could say hey still vegetables and and it, the natural world that's still part of the world as well so um but there is also a balance of uh just like if there's too much of one kind of animal or, or um insect then it can upset the balance of ecology and and yeah and, and so what i'm trying to say is is that it seems like there's there's both this chaos and this order within it all. Mm. It is. I mean, nature is incredible because uh, when it comes to order, it's very ordered, right? But it's ordered in a way where everything just by being itself in the most sincere and direct expression of itself that it is everything fits. And uh, it's like an emergent order. It's not a top-down order. It's the opposite of a, of a commanded order. Mm. Um, but yeah, even if everything fits on an ecosystem level, on a, on an interconnectedness level mm -hmm. in a, in a sense that the world will flourish if left to its own devices, this is to some degree. That's not the case for individuals. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. There's that right. suffering. And the, and the real question, I think, and something that I, I wonder about is, or I guess I should say, the thing, your interpretation of that, and if that's okay, depends on how you see death, mm, right? Right, right? Like someone's interpretation of if all of that is, mm -hmm. is acceptable or is terrible is how is what it means to be eaten by a predator. Mm -hmm. Val Plumwood, who's a panpsychist and an environmental philosopher, has this great anecdote of having been eaten partly by a crocodile. She mm -hmm. uh, it bit into her flesh, and she she writes about being meat and what it feels like to to be consumed, and that it's really it's very challenging to our sense of mm -hmm. of the individual self. Right, but in animistic societies. Uh, the way David Abram puts it, death isn't really a problem because there's no such thing. Mm. Your form changes. Mm -hmm. Emmanuel Cosia has a great book. My friend uh, Sophie Strand recommended it to me. She's also someone to check out if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Um, she it's it's a book by Emmanuel Cosia uh, called Metamorphoses, and he writes about how at the beginning of life we were all one organism and we shared one body and nothing has changed since <laughs> so uh mm -hmm. it's like the first line of the book and he, he mm -hmm. talks about how birth is really just a transformation it's yeah. just a it's a migration of life well, and not death, a creation yeah. of life Both. yeah right and and death exactly mm -hmm. uh and so in animistic cultures there's nowhere for the soul to go except back into the earth except mm -hmm. into the intelligence that surrounds and so things transmute mm -hmm. but they don't end right energy and, is neither the created nor destroyed yeah yeah mm -hmm. and so it's survival of the fittest if your priority is individual life mm -hmm. right and i think in the west we think that's the highest good 
Mm. We we seem to think that individual conscious experience and individual human lives are the inalienable and unassailable principles of the good. And I am not at all saying that we should not think that individuals matter mm-hmm. or right. that we shouldn't, you know, that we should start questioning whether or not life is sacred, right? Like mm-hmm. a certain life is sacred. But I do think that's not the highest good. I do think that there are things that we can that we can sacrifice the individual self too. And I don't mean life. I mean like like sacrificing a life. I, what I mean is that we can say there's something bigger that mm-hmm. we are, that in in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a Jungian sense, in an alchemical sense, we can transmute our sense of a solid atomic individual self into something that's much more interconnected. And that self is not as afraid of the mysterium tremendum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree. That's beautiful. Um, which kind of leads me to my next point. Um, you know, I think uh, we've discussed, oh, I think uh, certain people or certain beliefs, they they want to um, emphasize the difference between humans and the rest of the world and say, hey, we're self-aware, we have this intelligence, we have this ability to step outside of our natural instincts or whatever and, um, you know, have have this co-creation and, and stuff like that but um but i think it's i think i think that is important and that's something to celebrate but it's also important to celebrate um the that oneness and that that things have intelligence uh that we're, we're, we're still learning about like dolphins or octopus or um that they have these unique intelligence that are worthy of celebration and and exploration as well and uh mycelium which we kind of discussed a little bit <laughs> yeah and it's all such different kinds of experience i think right. that when we compare everything to humans and we're trying to look for even even the self awareness tests that we give to certain animals to see if mm-hmm. they can recognize themselves in mirrors uh to me, I'll be honest, I don't care much about that stuff. Uh-huh. I mean, I think it's interesting, right? but I don't think it's philosophically important. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's like how we're going to figure out if there are minds in other things, because mm-hmm. I don't think that there are minds in anything. I don't think there's minds in us. Uh, I think mind is experience, like, or, or especially when it comes to, I, I guess, that's getting into another conversation. Yeah, like, I had a conversation with my friend about AI <laughs> uh, recently. And yeah. That's- yeah, I think you're getting that is a whole other conversation. Too. Oh, yeah. It's um, but I think ethically, I guess what I'm mm-hmm. saying is ethically, when people are when people talk about, oh, human life is most important, then maybe the higher animals, and then it, it, we're just recapitulating the scala natura. We're just we're we're already that operating hierarchy. from the assumption, yeah, that mm-hmm. we're at the top, and then certain things that are more like us are are close in value and then less like us as it goes down the chain. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think that we are the arbiters of value. And I don't think that things that are more like us are more valuable Mm, or more worth existing or Mm -hmm. have more of a right Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that proving that creatures have intelligence that is like us says anything about whether or not they have experience, Mm -hmm. that they have phenomenal consciousness, that they have raw felt worlds that they encounter. I don't think you can find that by looking at 
where I mean, there's a difference between having an experience of a world and having an awareness that you have an experience of the world, right? So I have consciousness in my dreams. I have mm. self-consciousness and meta-consciousness in my waking life where I can say, oh, I'm conscious. I can recognize mm. that. I know who I am. I know that I am. Mm -hmm. But in my dream, I'm still experiencing. Right. And we don't know that a sea star or a mosquito or a tardigrade or even or a tree mm -hmm. or a mycelial network or even a lamp post and i know that's going out there but i i think there's mm -hmm. reason to to say that we can't decipher whether that has experience by looking at any quality of it we can mm -hmm. only say what kinds of we can only speculate on what kinds of experience it might have. Right. It, we say, oh, experiences the five senses, but that, but but our but our our mind is also in our imagination. All these 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 inner these are experiences too. And so, how can we say? Yeah, it's a, what is experience? <laughs> <laughs> right i i guess what i'm getting at is the hard problem of consciousness which mm -hmm, is right yeah the idea that you could map every neuron in the brain and you could show how every thought connects to every other thought how every idea connects to every other idea or emotion connects to every other emotion what exact hormones are involved you could mm -hmm. you could put this all on a grid it wouldn't tell you the first thing about what it's like to feel any of that stuff what mm -hmm. the intrinsic nature of those experiences are mm-hmm it would just show how they behave in relation to each other or in relation to other things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's the same problem that... Uh, so there's this great book on panpsychism by the philosopher Philip Goff called Galileo's Error. And the error in the title, Galileo's Error, is in the formation of material science. The idea that Galileo basically said, Science cannot tell us anything about the intrinsic nature of things, about the soul, about experience, but it can tell us about how the world appears to experience, how the world appears to with like from our point of view. Mm. So um it can it can tell us about the behavior of things. So it can it can tell us the quantitative things about things and their relationships, but it can't tell us the qualitative nature mm. of anything. Right. So science has proceeded that way for its entire history and that's one of the reasons it can't it, it's not ever going to be able to solve the problem of consciousness because mm -hmm. consciousness is the very thing that was excluded from the inquiry to begin with right it's in the structure of science never addressed that question mm -hmm. uh bertrand russell has a critique of it's not really a critique but just he points out that Physics doesn't explain anything because it's just it's taking out someone else's laundry. In other words, you can show how particles interact with other particles, how things interact with other things, but you never have at any point any anything at all on the intrinsic nature of those particles. Mm -hmm. um, and he himself, even though he's very much a, an analytic philosopher, very much a, a skeptic, advocated for a kind of neutral monism of there is of consciousness is inherent in everything in some degree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think there's good reason to, to start from that position. Right. So, 
Uh, tell me the difference because I keep asking people and I, I don't have a clear idea still. What is the difference between idealism and panpsychism? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a, a podcast called um, Walden Pod, which is the best podcast name mm-hmm. that I've heard. Uh, and it's it's by this guy named Emerson Green. And he has a... Uh, he he asked the same question because there's a philosopher who maybe you're familiar with, Bernardo Castrup. Yes. Who yes. advocates for mm-hmm. analytic idealism. Mm-hmm. And he differentiates it from panpsychism. And Emerson Green thinks, and I kind of agree, that this is mostly perhaps because he wants to be, he wants to have his name for the thing. <laughs> that, <laughs> uh-huh. and, and, and that's not, I mean, that's an ad hominem. I don't know. Like right. it's not about him specifically, but more mm-hmm. so that from the 10,000 foot angle, mm-hmm. like from, from far enough away, they look the same. They're, they're mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them, both of them claim that consciousness is the intrinsic nature of matter. Mm-hmm. The difference is in the explanations. So, uh, for for how this could come about, or how this how this affects us, and for panpsychists, from my understanding, it comes about largely from the argument I was just laying out that that we don't know the intrinsic nature of matter. We know that the intrinsic nature of some matter, namely us, is experiential, has mm-hmm. the qualities of, of felt experience, that it is like something to be some matter. And because no amount, and I mean no amount of scientific analysis or observation of the external world gets you one modicum closer to answering the question of what it is like to be anything, mm. then why not presume, since we have a data point of one, that everything is 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 that right like that's mm-hmm. the starting point mm-hmm. there's no reason to assume there would be something like something called unconscious matter or mm-hmm. inanimate matter or or non-experiential matter um i mean it, it, it's kind of an extension of the philosophical zombie argument like i could say which is the, the idea of a philosophical zombie is is that there could is is well the, the question of the philosophical zombie is how do i know that you're conscious mm-hmm Right? How do I know that you have experience? You could be an automaton programmed with neur- with neurons to be exactly like like. How do I know I'm not the only conscious experience? Right, right. Uh, I have to make assumptions, and mm-hmm. I make assumptions based on your similarities to me. Mm, right. But if we then discover that no matter how much I look at your brain, I don't get one inch closer to understanding what it is like to be like something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might know why you're angry when I do this if I look at your brain or why you're why how you can conceptualize this and that and the, like I might be able to figure out the specifics of aspects of your consciousness but I'll never even approach the question of that there is conscious experience so if I can't figure that out by looking in detail about you why uh-huh. why would I make the assumption that any I mean there, there's no place right. that I should stop right not even mm-hmm. with not with animals not with any other life not even with non-life there's no mm-hmm. reason to differentiate mm-hmm uh and so that's the panpsychist argument or one panpsychist argument that i've heard mm-hmm. the argument castro makes involves that same premise mm-hmm. but he 
he uses the model of, well, he's trying to answer a question that's a problem for panpsychism, which is called the combination problem, which is the idea that, okay, so yes, it's like something to be you, but how do all of the consciousnesses inside of you combine to mm. be you? Like why, like if mm. every atom is conscious, yeah. then why are you not just a bunch of atoms that are conscious? Like, why are you, <laughs> you that are conscious? Like how, right. do the, how does consciousness a collective? Yeah. Like that, mm -hmm. that's, and that's a really tough question for panpsychists to answer mm. because if the world is created of is, is made of a bunch of stuff whose intrinsic nature is consciousness, mm -hmm. then uh, you have to figure out how those consciousnesses can relate to one another. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where Castrop, I think, makes a really strong, takes a really like makes a really strong argument, which is, mm -hmm. and I'm having to go back. It's been a little bit since I was was reading his work. Um, but his argument is the world is not made up of a bunch of stuff that is intrinsically conscious. The world is consciousness that appears as matter across the dissociative boundary of different alter identities of the dissociated mind of the cosmos. So to break that down. Great job. I just want to congratulate you on remembering and saying that. <laughs> it's 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 like I mean it's it's a really weird, trippy mm -hmm. idea, right? It's right. like because he's trying to answer why he's also in addition to the combination problem, he's trying you to say like like quantum yeah. field underneath. Yeah. And, yeah. Absolutely. It's he and he mm -hmm. talks a little bit about the quantum right. connection there, which I do not know enough about to to know uh, one or the other what uh -huh. that speaks to you, but uh but there's no combination problem there because there's no modicums of consciousness mm. to that have to combine. Um, but there's a new problem, which is how does a universal mind, how does consciousness as the fabric of existence mm -hmm. separate into me and you? How, right. how come I'm not you? Right. How do we think we're separate and why do we not share thoughts and all this, everything? Exactly. Like why mm -hmm. are we experiencing ourselves as separate? Mm -hmm. And his, his, ideas based on the the uh the model of dissociative identity disorder mm. so in dissociative identity disorder there are multiple alters of a personality and ah, you can swap parts between work. the alters exactly it's yeah. a little bit Carly like eternal Young. family systems yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. richard schwartz i i've mm -hmm. been really into to ifs recently too it's, oh, it's yeah. i mean i Good think stuff. it's a beautiful nuancing of what's ultimately a jungian psychology right that is very evocative. Uh, mm. Bill Plotkin in Wild Mind has a kind of eco-psychological version of internal family systems that I also find really, really attractive. Uh, so that's, if you're into that, that's a, a really yeah. good rabbit hole to go down. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, so if we're different alters, then we're, we are one mind. Mm -hmm. We just have, there's been a trauma right. that has separated us from mm -hmm. the mind that we ultimately are are all mm -hmm. are. So mm -hmm. and he he makes reference to a lot of the mystical traditions that talk about the the dif talk about difference as illusion. This mm -hmm. is all Maya. This is all yeah. this is all a game we're playing. Right. But really we're all one. The kind right. this is all just the river that says that says ohm, right? It's mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um so yeah it's it's fascinating it, to me. I yeah. do find it a very attractive philosophy. Right. And and you know, according to the stories, whatever you believe, you know, the gurus, they remember their past lives and they remember all these, all these things that, that, 
that's been separated from most of our memories. Um, and that is that, that difference and that different experience or death that separates that it is all that one. So, and Mm -hmm. then, and then, you know, the telepathy, all all these different things that they kind of point to this idea as well. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. Um, I, yeah, when it comes to the, when it comes to paranormal stuff, I find myself, (laughs) I find myself waking up every morning with a new person, with a different (laughs) Uh (laughs) position. (laughs) Right. Right. I, it's all such a mystery. Like it's so, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. so fascinating. There's something there, but what is it exactly? (laughs) Exactly. No, there is something there. There is something Uh there. There's no doubt. But is, what is it? Right. Yeah. Like, is it the, is it that I can read your mind? Is it that mind is of some substance that intersperses itself Mm -hmm. slightly unevenly between us? Mm -hmm. Is it that we're picking up on subtle unconscious things that are cueing us to mm-hmm. those those epiphanies or those apparent resonances? Mm-hmm. Or is it that we're all expressions of a universal mind that like a mycelial network pops up as a, a fruiting body in different mm-hmm. places at different times, but is ultimately part of one sense where it's like, it's not that I'm communicating with you, but that we're both expressions of something that's thinking through us. So right. we think those same thoughts or yeah. would feel those same ways or when, it, so it's, hmm. there's, there's so many possibilities <laughs> for uh-huh. how that works. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So obviously idealism, this, everything we've been talking about is fascinating, but mm. I think the, uh, the practical, what does this mean? It means, yeah, we're all connected and we're all important and we'll all have these experience. We're all, living beings in a, in a way and so have respect and empathy and care for each other and we're on this relationship so yeah just how can we think of all of us in our relationship and mm. and yeah how can we care for each other and again that uh, survival together and uh flourishing i love that question i'm really glad that you brought this back to the practical because at the end of the day as much as I love playing in the realm of ideas, <laughs> right. it's I care about all of this stuff because I am in love with the world mm-hmm. so deeply. And I I kind of think of re-enchantment, which is really just the recognition of the already present enchantment as, as a training to care. Like it's how we open ourselves up to those things and have experiences of, of love and wonder. When we do that, we care. When we do that, we we resonate with, we we open our hearts to what else is around us. And then we we get motivated. We get motivated to take action. We get motivated to uh to make differences in our lives and in the lives of others and to uh protect against the ravenous appetite of what uh Robins, Robinson Jeffers thought of as like a what was his term like some kind of like gross i just have the image of it from one of his poems that was so mm-hmm. evocative like the western world the mm-hmm. modern world is this like grotesque machine that's eating mm-hmm. itself that's like a, <laughs> he talks about the severed hand that, mm-hmm. that that it is like kind of crawling along into the and destroying everything it sees mm-hmm. um my work with wonder with trying to encourage wonder is 
an encouragement of attention. It's an encouragement of seeing what's there. I think that we've mm. made the world invisible, and when we make mm-hmm. it invisible, we can't care about it. We don't see what's invisible. Right. So the recovery we think we have the, we we've got it all figured out, so we don't need to examine it anymore because mm-hmm. it's already all discovered. Absolutely, and and the work is to suspend those judgments and pay deep mm-hmm. attention to what's there, to release the name of the thing and really look at it, to not assume that you understand a thing, but to deeply experience it, to not get lost in the left brain categorizations mm-hmm. uh, of the of of. There's a book, The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGillicrest. That's an excellent book by a neuroscientist on the relationship of the left and right brains. But he talks about how the left brain really should be the emissary of the right mm, brain. And it's because it's, it's a good, it's a good bureaucrat. Mm-hmm. It, it categorizes, it names, mm-hmm. but the right brain is where our raw experience is. And it's also where we put everything back together. And so we need to get more in touch with that, with, um, with really knowing in a familial way, the world around us and that openness and attentiveness in my master's thesis, when I was writing about wonder, I, the whole middle of it is about attention because I think attention Mm. to the world is how we get to wonder. Mary Oliver said, I don't know what a prayer is, but I know how to pay attention. I know how to fall (laughs) down on my knees and Mm -hmm. honor the world around me. And she, my favorite part of that poem is, um, she says, uh, but what I'm concerned with is, is who made the grass? She's like, who made the world? Who made all this? Mm -hmm. Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. This mm. one right here that is eating the sugar cube for the for, from the picnic or mm. whatever it was like, I I'm so in in awe of that of those particularities because that's where we find that enchantment and mm. the other world is the aliveness. Seeing, I mean, it goes back to what we're talking about at the beginning with imagination. Seeing the stick as a sword is not projecting onto the stick. It's seeing transparently through the stick into the sword that's waiting there. And it it enlivens the stick with a magic that's bursting through everything all the time and that we have just developed a kind of veiled gaze, what the Irish poet philosopher John Moriarty calls a Medusa mindset, where we mm. look at everything and we actively are turning it all to stone. Which leaves us in a universe of echoing hard rockiness that's devoid of all real sensation or quality Mm -hmm. and which we might as well pave over because it's all it's all just the flatness of pavement anyway. Mm -hmm. It's all just mechanism. Why not turn it into a big machine? It already is one. And so. That work of shifting into the state of immersive enchantment is so vital because otherwise we can't, we don't even know what world we're trying to save. We don't have a world we're trying to save mm. if we're not in that state, if we can't mm-hmm. access that state. We're just trying to save a machine for the sake of another machine. Okay, who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's great. I, I love all that. Um, I would love to talk another hour or two with you. I think we could. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but, I'd be uh, happy to. I uh I love this conversation. I I appreciate all your your wisdom and your insight and um yeah, it was amazing. I I do have to uh get to work, so I have to end it here. <laughs> no problem. This was a blast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, awesome. 